0: In his essay, The Present Age, which is usually read on its own, but is actually part of a larger piece called The Two Ages, which was a review that Kierkegaard wrote. One of the key aspects of what he's calling the present age, which we might identify with our own, depending on where we are and how we see it, is the prevalence of envy. He will, in fact, say that envy becomes the negatively unifying principle in a passionless and very reflective age. So there's a connection between envy, which, by the way, is felt in other ages. We're going to talk about that in a bit, but this centrality of envy and an age that is very reflective and an age that is also essentially passionless. That doesn't mean that nobody in the age feels passions or anything like that, but it's we're talking about the characteristic of the age and the culture and the society. And we really need to begin before he starts talking about envy because there's some developments that are taking place in the work that are leading up to why envy becomes such an important matter. The other thing to point out too is that Envy is going to also, take the form of something that Kierkegaard is going to call leveling, but we're not going to talk about that quite yet. So, we're going to focus on the situation that he talks about. And he tells us that we're in a reflective age and that there is something that he calls an essential or existential rather equivocation taking place. Now, this is just after he said that an age that's revolutionary and reflecting and devoid of passion changes the. The expression of power into a dialectical tour de force. He says that it exhausts the inner actuality of relations in a tension of reflection that lets everything remain and yet has transformed the whole of existence into an equivocation. Right? Now, a little bit later, he'll talk about that again. He brings up character and here we don't want to have like too definite of an idea of what exactly character is, so don't start bringing in things from other virtue ethics or anything like that. He says though, Morality is character. Character is something engraved, but the sea has no character, nor does sand, nor abstract common sense either, for character is inwardness. There is a, when we talk about inwardness in Kierkegaard, that means that there is a depth to the person, and it's not something that's immediately evident or obvious, you would have to get to know somebody in order to know something about their inwardness. It's not something that is going to be immediately apparent from their social media or their LinkedIn profile or their CV or whatever else it is, you know, reports that people are having about them. As a matter of fact, we might actually get the opposite of that if you think about the way things like Instagram and Facebook work, where it's this tiny little window into the person's life, carefully sculpted much of the time. Right? So he says character is inwardness, as energy, immorality is also character. So, character is morality, character as immorality. And then he says it's equivocation to be neither one nor the other. So, that's an unusual use of the term equivocation. Usually we use that to talk about terms. Like I say, okay, Go and get me a seal. Now, do you mean the, the pop singer from who was popular in the 90s with the scars on his face who sang Touched by a Rose? Do you mean the animal that sometimes, you know, plays horns or, you know, we watch nature films of? Do you mean like something that you slam into a piece of wax that's been heated up to seal it up? Or do you mean maybe the seal on a bag or something like that? That's an equivocation. What's going on here is an equivocation in a different way. He talks about it being existential equivocation when the qualitative disjunction of the qualities is impaired by a gnawing reflection. You might say, well, what does that mean, right? Okay, well, so think about character understood as morality and immorality, as goodness and badness. He says that, an uprising motivated by passion is elemental, a disintegration motivated by equivocation is a quiet but busy sorites going on day and night in argument. The distinction between good and evil is enervated. That means it loses its energy, it loses its, its firmness by a loose, supercilious, theoretical acquaintance with evil, by an overbearing shrewdness which knows that the good is not appreciated or rewarded in the world, and thus it practically becomes stupidity. No one is carried away to great exploits by the good, no one is rushed into outrageous sin by evil. The one is just as good as the other. And yet for that very reason, there's all the more to gossip about. He says, ambiguity and equivocation are titillating and stimulating and have many more words than are possessed by joy over the good and the loathing of evil. We lose track. We don't stop using the terms good and evil, but we get a different sort of mileage out of it where there's not a commitment to either one. And there's kind of a blurring of the distinctions between them or oscillations. And so, you know, this is actually a significant issue. The reflection replaces any sort of commitment with ambiguity or equivocation he also talks about there's a beautiful phrase the coiled springs of life relationships so what are life relationships in many of these there's some sort of hierarchy involved and Notice that Kierkegaard is not endorsing, you know, the person on top gets to tell the person on the bottom what to do, and they should just go along and do it. He talks, for example, about the loyal citizen who cheerfully does homage to his king and now is embittered by his tyranny. He can be embittered by the tyranny because he did loyal homage, because he acknowledged that there was some sort of difference of relation between the two. Father and son he talks about as well. He talks about the father who indignantly concentrates his fatherly authority in one single curse, or the son who defies. And then he says, this is a rift that could still perhaps end in the inwardness of reconciliation. At least when you have something to push against, you know where you stand, right? This is very important. So he talks about life relationships as involving these differences between opposites and those involve inwardness these come to be replaced he says by a kind of mutual watchfulness he says inwardness is lacking and to that extent the relation does not exist or the relation is an inert cohesion the negative law is they cannot do with without each other and they cannot stay together right So instead of the relation of inwardness, the opposites do not relate to each other, but stand, as it were, and carefully watch each other. And this tension is actually the termination of the relation. He says, this is not the cheerful, confident admiration, quick with words of appreciation that tips its hat to distinction, and now is shocked by its pride and arrogance. And so he's got this great example that I really love here in part because I can, I can relate to it a bit myself. He says in education, right? In order to think over the relations in a higher relation, but finally the whole generation becomes a representation, which represents, well, there's no saying whom, which thinks over the relation, this is not an insubordinate adolescent who quivers and shakes before his schoolmaster. No, the relation is rather a certain uniformity in mutual exchange between teacher and pupil on how a good school should be run. And then Kierkegaard says, going to school does not mean quivering and shaking, but neither does it mean simply and solely learning, but means being more or less interested in the problem of education. And so he's not saying that this is all a bad thing. It's not like we should say, well, students, shut up and do what I say, right? Maybe we do need input from them. But the idea that we totally change the relation so we're all on the same level, we're all peers to each other, and we, you know, spout BS like... I learn just as much from my students as they do from me. I mean, if that's the case, you're actually a bad teacher. You haven't been doing teaching long enough, you know, or you're a little bit too navel gazing about your own teaching. Really, you should be focused on, on education. And that does require a bit of telling people what to do. doesn't mean you have to beat them or anything like that. Right. But these things are what Kierkegaard calls life relationships. And they're replaced by what he calls an enervating tension. Now, What does this lead us to? He says, what should such a relation be called? Attention, I think. But not attention that strains every nerve to the point of denouement, but attention that enervates life. It makes you tired. It exhausts you. It makes it possible for you to engage in reflection, but not action. So he goes down and he's he's got this example of a grandfather clock. He says, I visited a family with a grandfather clock that was out of order, but the trouble did not show up in a sudden slackness of the spring or the breaking of a chain or failure to strike. On the contrary, it went on striking, but in a curious, abstractly normal, but nevertheless confusing way. It did not strike 12 strokes at 12 o'clock and then one at one o'clock, but only once at regular intervals. It went on striking this way all day and never once gave the hour. For those who don't have clocks like that, because we live in such a digital age, a grandfather clock like that would actually chime when you got to the hour. And if it was 2 o'clock, it would give you two dings. And if it was 5 o'clock, five dings. And and a lot of people had these sorts of things. So this clock just goes off at random intervals, and it always chimes once. It's not much of a clock now, is it? But the family still has it. And so he goes on and he says... So it is in an enervating tension. The relations remain, but in a state of abstract non-cessation that prevents the breakdown. There are some signs that may be called manifestations of the relations, but the relations are not only indicated imprecisely, but meaninglessly. So that you preserve the relation, but the relations don't really mean anything. Think about if you've seen the movie, I think it was Mean Girls, in which Amy Poehler presents herself as the cool mom who's not like the other moms. That's exactly the sort of thing that Kierkegaard is talking about. And you notice that she doesn't get anything out of the relationship because of that. Nobody takes her seriously. They all just sort of use her. So, Kierkegaard has other examples. He talks about, we don't want to abolish the monarchy, but if little by little we could get it transformed into make-believe, we would gladly shout hooray for the king. We don't want to topple eminence, but if simultaneously we could spread the notion it's all make-believe, we would approve and admire. In the same way, we're willing to keep Christian terminology, but privately know that nothing decisive is to be meant by it. None of these things really require any commitment or sacrifice, giving something up on our part. And if the the king decided to act like a king, then they would in fact remove him from his kingship, right? And establish something new. So Kierkegaard goes on and he says that, ultimately the tension of reflection, this tension that we've been talking about, establishes itself as a principle. What is that principle? envy. It becomes the negative unifying principle of the age. And he says, don't jump right away into thinking about this in ethical terms. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's just focus on what's actually going on. What is envy? And here he provides us with a bit of an analysis, somewhat metaphorical, of course. He's not like doing straight out psychology here. But he says that reflection's idea is envy. And the envy is two-sided. There's a selfishness in the individual and then the selfishness of associates towards him. When you're envious of somebody else, you want to have what they have. And, you know, if we use like the ancient Greek conception of it, Aristotle, for example, talks about envy as being pain at somebody else doing well, right? And so you, you're not happy because they've got something that you have, and you would like to have that thing. The ancient Greeks, by the way, thought of the, the gods as being envious of human beings. So that makes for kind of a rough universe, doesn't it? And so there's a selfishness involved in envy, a fundamental modality of selfishness. And it's a selfishness that you would have, and then it's a selfishness of those who you're associated with, who you think would be like on your side, wanting the best for you. But no, they also are driven by envy as well. And that can poison and pervade anything else that they feel towards you. He says, reflections, envy, and the individual frustrates an impassioned decision on their part. And if they're on the verge of decision, the reflective opposition of his associates stops him. So he has in mind not just envy per se, but an envy that limits our ability to commit, to act, to have existential authenticity. It wants us to fit in. It wants us to be manageable and we want that for other people and other people want that for ourselves in an age of reflection. He has this really incredible metaphor here of a prison and he says that reflection's envy holds the will and energy in a kind of captivity, right? So there's a restriction going on there. How does it work? Does it like just hold us in place? No, because it's reflection it'll say, there's no point in doing that thing. You're never gonna really amount to anything with that. Just be like the rest of us. And so he says, the individual must first of all break out of the prison in which his own reflection holds him. First, we have to look at how envy is working within ourselves and holding us back. Envy of other people, perhaps also envy of our former selves of the possibilities that we haven't realized, what I could have been if I'd written those 10 books, right? We have to break out of that prison. And then once we do that, Kierkegaard says, we don't stand in the open, but in the vast penitentiary built by the reflection of his associates. And to this, he is again related through the reflection relation in himself. It can only be broken by religious inwardness, how much, however much he sees through the falseness of the relation. So it's not just freeing one's own mind, you're still stuck in the whole system of expectations and reactions and reflections of other people that you might continually internalize and live out. Codependency, as we talk about it today, would be a prime example of this sort of thing, right? And he goes on and he says, this is a very interesting point of view. It's not tyrants, not secret police, not the clergy and the aristocracy that is doing this to us. Reflection does everything in its power to thwart this discernment and maintains the flattering notion that possibilities which reflection offers are much more magnificent than a paltry decision, than committing ourselves somewhere. In the form of desire, selfish envy demands too much of the individual himself and thereby frustrates him. It coddles and spoils him, just as a weak mother's preferential love coddles and spoils, for his own envy prevents him from sacrificing himself. The envy of his associates, in which the individual himself participates towards others, is envious in the negatively critical sense. So envy holds us back in this two-sided way. Is Kierkegaard saying envy is always terrible, always bad? No. And here he has an interesting reflection that he engages in. He says, even the most inspired age insists on joking enviously about excellence. That is quite all right. If, after making sport of excellence, it once again views excellence with admiration and is able to regard it as unaltered. Otherwise, it will have lost more by joking than the joke was worth. And he says, even in a a less inspired age, if it still has the power to endow envy with character and is aware of what expressing it means, can have its own, albeit perilous significance. And he uses the example of Greeks and ostracism. When you ostracize somebody, in the classic sense, it's not the same thing as shunning, which it's often mistaken for. Ostracism was kicking out the people who you thought were actually excellent and might become tyrants. So you kick them out. And then they get to come back usually after like 10 years of exile. Sometimes they didn't want to come back, right? Understandably so. But when you're doing that, you're acknowledging you are in fact better than me in some respects. That's why we're kicking you out. So so long as there's an acknowledgement of excellence, an existential acknowledgement of excellence, not just a theoretical or or pro forma one, envy can in fact be not too bad. It's not necessarily good, but it can, you know, it can be involved in, in action. What about ethical envy? So here's where it gets quite interesting. He says that the more reflection becomes dominant and develops indolence, the more dangerous envy becomes. Why? Because it no longer has the character to come to a self-awareness of its own significance. It can't really understand what envy is or why it behaves the way it does, and it engages in this process of envy. I'm going to read this passage, and you can think about whether this is something that relates to your own experience. Lacking that character relates to events and reinterprets the same thing in all sorts of ways. Wants it to be taken as a joke, when that apparently miscarries. Wants it to be taken as an insult, if that miscarries. Claims that nothing was meant at all, that it was supposed to be a witticism. If that miscarries, explains it was not to be meant that either. That it was ethical satire, which in fact ought to be some concern to people. If that miscarries, said that it is nothing anyone should pay attention to. Envy turns into the principle of characterlessness, he says. How often have you seen somebody saying things about people, events, groups, whatever it happens to be, in which there is some sort of excellence, and you're like, oh, come on, man, that's that's not cool, and then they suddenly change their tune, and they're shifting all the time, and they can't actually settle on something, because you keep saying, well, that's not good either, or I don't like that. They're embodying what Kierkegaard here is calling enviousness. So He says that characterless envy does not understand excellence is excellence, does not understand that it is itself a negative acknowledgement of excellence, but wants to degrade it, minimize it until it actually is no longer excellence. And envy takes as its object, not only the excellence, which is, but that which is to come. So envy, in this sense, becomes this driving principle that just wants to pull things down. Doesn't want to build anything up. It's not emulation. It's not me seeing somebody else write a great treatment of Aristotle and saying, man, I want to do that myself, you know. Or you watching me talking on video or, you know, in in podcasts and saying, "I I could probably do that. Let me give a shot at that. No, envy just pulls things down. Oh, that's no good. Uh, You you didn't talk about everything you possibly could have. It it always finds a way to do so. It's similar, if we move into other philosophers, to what is also gonna be called by other existentialists, like for example, Nietzsche, ressentiment. So this is something that Kierkegaard thinks is absolutely central in what he's calling the present age. And you might think about whether